Welcome to Old Treasures Made New, your devotional podcast on the go or at home where we read the scriptures and reflect on them with those from the past. Today we're reading Mark 14, verses 1 to 9, and then through J.C. Rao's expository thoughts on Mark. Please take a moment to pause and to ask the Holy Spirit to bring understanding and to apply what we hear. Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than three hundred denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is the word of the Lord. This chapter begins that part of Mark's gospel which describes our Lord's sufferings and death. Hitherto, we have chiefly seen our Savior as our prophet and teacher. We have now to see him as our high priest. Hitherto, we have had to consider his miracles and sayings. We have now to consider his vicarious sacrifice on the cross. Let us observe in these verses how God can disappoint the designs of wicked men and overrule them for his own glory. It is plain from Mark's words and the parallel passage in Matthew that our Lord's enemies did not intend to make his death a public transaction. They sought to take him secretly. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. In short, it would appear that their original plan was to do nothing until the feast of the Passover was over and the Passover worshippers had returned to their own homes. The overruling providence of God completely defeated this political design. The betrayal of our Lord took place at an earlier time than the chief priests had expected. The death of our Lord took place the very day when Jerusalem was the most full of people, and the Passover feast was at its height. In every way, the counsel of these wicked men was turned to foolishness. They thought they were going to put an end forever to Christ's spiritual kingdom, And in reality, they were helping to establish it. They thought to have him made vile and contemptible by the crucifixion, and in reality, they made him glorious. They thought to have him put to death privately and without observation, and instead, they were compelled to crucify him publicly and before the whole nation of the Jews. They thought to have silenced his disciples and stopped their teaching, and instead, they supplied them with a text and a subject forevermore. So easy is it for God to cause the wrath of man to praise him. Psalm 76 verse 10. There is comfort in all this for true Christians. They live in a troubled world and are often tossed to and fro by anxiety about public events. Let them rest themselves in the thought that everything is ordered for good by an all-wise God. Let them not doubt that all things in the world around them are working together for their Father's glory. Let them call to mind the words of the second psalm. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And yet it goes on. He 
that sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. It has been so in the time past. It will be so in time to come. Let us observe secondly in these verses how good works are sometimes undervalued and misunderstood. We are told of the work of a certain woman in pouring ointment on our Lord's head at the house of Bethany. She did it, no doubt, as a mark of honor and respect and in token of her own gratitude and love towards him. Yet this act of hers was blamed by some. Their cold hearts could not understand such costly liberality. They called it waste. They had indignation within themselves. They murmured against her. The spirit of these narrow-minded fault-finders is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never lacking a generation of people who depreciate what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He is beside himself. He is out of his mind. He is a fanatic. He is an enthusiast. He is overly righteous. He is an extreme man. In short, they regard it as waste. Let charges like these not disturb us if we hear them made against us because we strive to serve Christ. Let us bear them patiently and remember that they are as old as Christianity itself. Let us pity those who make such charges against believers. They show plainly they have no sense of obligation to Christ. A cold heart makes a slow hand. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Psalm 116 verse 12. He will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of the world. He will not be afraid of lavishing them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure, but he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. Let us observe in the last place how highly our Lord Jesus Christ esteems any service done to himself. Nowhere, perhaps, in the Gospels do we find such strong praises bestowed on any person as this woman here receives. Three points in particular stand out prominently in our Lord's words, to which many who now ridicule and blame others for their religion's sake would do well to take heed. For one thing, our Lord says, Why are you troubling her? A heart-searching question, that, and one which all who persecute others because of their religion would find it hard to answer. What cause can they show? What reason can they assign for their conduct? None. None at all. They trouble others out of envy, malice, ignorance, and dislike of the true gospel. For another thing, our Lord says, She has done a beautiful thing to me. How great and marvelous is that praise from the lips of the King of Kings! Money is often given to the church or bestowed on charitable institutions from ostentation or other false motives. But it is the person who loves and honors Jesus himself who really does good works. For another thing, our Lord says, She has done what she could. No stronger word of commendation than that could possibly have been used. 
Thousands live and die without grace and are eternally lost who are always saying, I try all I can, I do all I can. And yet in saying so, they tell as great a lie as Ananias and Sapphira. Few, it may be feared, are to be found like this woman and really deserve to have it said of them that they do what they can. Let us leave the passage with practical self-application. Let us, like this holy woman, whose conduct we have just heard described, devote ourselves and all we have to Christ's glory. Our position in the world may be lowly, and our means of usefulness few, but let us, like her, do what we can. Finally, let us see in this passage a sweet foretaste of things yet to come in the day of judgment. Let us believe that the same Jesus who here pleaded the cause of his loving servant when she was blamed will one day plead for all who have been his servants in this world. Let us work on, remembering that his eye is upon us and that all we do is noted in his book. Let us not heed what men say or think of us because of our religion. The praise of Christ at the last day will more than compensate for all we suffer in this world from unkind tongues. That is the end of Rao's expository thoughts for these verses. Let us carefully consider what we've heard today, and may the Lord be pleased to bring the growth for His glory. In considering what you've just heard, would you prayerfully ask yourself and others the following questions? First, does the sovereignty of God bring you comfort, knowing that all things work for good for those who love Him? How would this truth comfort you in the midst of difficulties? Second, have we seen others give in abundance? If so, what was our reaction? Utterly foolish or rightfully lavish? What does the speed of our hands to help and give for the good of God's kingdom say about our hearts? And lastly, what is our primary motive for doing good? Would Christ say it was a beautiful thing done for him or for self? Are we doing what we can for God and his kingdom?